0: Well, some of you know that uh, before we came here, moved to Michigan, and came to WBC in March of this year, I served as a college ministries pastor uh, down in Lynchburg, Virginia, for seven years. And our our church was about 10 minutes away. It was very close to a, a rather large Christian university. And when I took that position in 2010... I just really didn't think a whole lot about a lot of things, Um, but one of the things that I just didn't process through was that at this Christian university, students would meet guys and girls, and they would start dating, and they would get married. I don't know why I didn't process through this, because that's what happened to me, Um, but I didn't process through that they would get married, they would meet perhaps in our college ministry, and then... Being as I was one of their pastors, they may ask me to do their wedding. I just didn't think about it. And so a couple of years into this, um, all of a sudden I start getting asked to officiate weddings. Um, The very first wedding I did, I was absolutely terrified. Uh, It was the, the guy that was supposed to give the charge at the wedding. I was just supposed to do a little piece of it. They said, oh, he'll talk for probably 15 or 20 minutes. You don't need to come up with that much stuff to say. Basically, just do the vows. Well, he got up there and talked for like 30 seconds. And, and then I had to sort of ad lib, and it was my first wedding. It was terrifying. Um, but a couple years into this thing, I started getting asked to do all these weddings. And the first six weddings that I did were all in, in six different states. Students would come to the university from all over the country, and they would think, oh, well, he can just come to our home state and do the wedding. And so we would end up as a traveling uh, wedding group. The kids would be the the, uh, flower girl and the ring bearer sometimes. I would do the wedding. We sort of had a shtick going on, you know, where (laughs) we could cover you if you needed it, right? Um, So it was great. We really enjoyed it. Have some great stories from doing weddings. But... As uh, well, our modern American culture sort of um, sort of presents weddings as this thing that women enjoy going to and men despise going to um, i don 't know if some of you feel like that, uh, but I have to tell you that as I started going to more and more weddings and as I started officiating more and more weddings, I really started to grow to love the experience of being at a wedding. I started to really enjoy it. Um, and of course, when you're officiating it the whole weekend, you go to the rehearsal, the rehearsal dinner, and you obviously know the family well, or at least the students that are getting married. And I, so we just, I really started to enjoy weddings. And as I would do more of them, my absolute favorite part, I don't know if I lose my man card for admitting this, but my absolute favorite part of the wedding, all the weddings that I would do would be to be at the front and watch the bride come down the aisle to her fiance, soon to be her husband, and I love to watch her expression and even his expression as she would come through the back doors or as he would see her for the first time, and they would sort of lock eyes on one another. And some of the some of the uh, women would cry; some would just have this delighted look on their face. No one looked sad as they were coming down the aisle. Thankfully, <laughs> um, but I just I grew to love that experience of watching that take place. And so now, uh when I officiate a wedding and I'm able to stand up front, it's just the weirdest thing, my allergies will start acting up right when that happens. <laughs> um when she's coming down the aisle, you know, and uh it's it's really an odd thing that's started to happen to me. But in our culture, weddings are a party. I mean, it, it's a fun time, right? You rejoice, you enjoy this. But in our culture, er, Weddings don't compare at all to what they were in, in the Jewish culture that we read about in Scripture. Um, the length and excitement of a wedding during Jesus' day was really, I think, probably would have been something to behold. Um, they would party for a week. Seriously, they would party for seven straight days. People wouldn't go to work. There was lots of food and drink and dancing and just games and enjoyment of this whole Experience and of this couple coming together. And it was meant and intended to promote and to celebrate the goodness of marriage and to rejoice over marriage. Now, if you see our passage on the screen this morning, Mark chapter 2, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one right in front of you, and the page number for our passage is going to be in the bulletin for you. Um, you can find it there. But Mark chapter 2. And I start out talking about weddings because in our passage today, Jesus refers to himself as a bridegroom, as someone who's about to get married. And he evokes this wedding imagery and he wants us to think about weddings and his role in a wedding for a specific purpose. This passage is really centered around the idea that Jesus is the bridegroom. And so this morning, I want us to kind of center our thoughts on that concept of Jesus as the bridegroom. Now, we're not going to get to that concept for just a couple of minutes here, but the whole sermon, the whole text is sort of framed around that idea of Jesus as the bridegroom. So this morning, I want to give you four effects of the bridegroom's arrival. Okay, so four effects of the bridegroom's arrival and these effects are going to clarify his ministry and they're also going to call for our response of worship. So four effects of the bridegroom's arrival that clarify his ministry and call for our worship and these are in Mark chapter 2 verses 18 to 22 and the first one of these effects oddly enough is disruption. Disruption, And it's found in verses 18, and then we're going to skip over to verses 21 and 22. Now, keep in mind here that we're in the middle of a series. You probably saw the poster out there as you came in. Maybe it's been a few weeks now, and you don't notice it. It's become normal. But we're in the midst of a series called Kingdom Conflict. And what we're doing is we're learning about Christ and who he is through these various conflicts he had with different groups of people, mostly religious leaders. We're going to learn about him from the opposition that he faced. And we've just seen a story in Mark 2, verses 13 to 17, where Jesus gets maligned by the religious leaders, and it's because he's been feasting. I mean, he's been going to a party with the lowlifes of society, people that they did not think should have been invited to participate with a well-respected rabbi, and he should not have been feasting with them. They were very concerned about this. Well, on the heels of Christ getting called out for feasting with them, now he gets called out for his participation or non-participation in fasting. So opposite sides of the spectrum there. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So whoever's asking this question, they notice something. They see these two religious groups, John the Baptist disciples. Apparently, there's still some of them around following his teaching, his way of life, and then also the Pharisees. And they see these two distinct religious groups, and they notice something about these groups that's not true about Jesus and his disciples. Now, in this day... There were many of these different groups around, and these groups, these religious groups would sort of organize themselves and cluster together based on maybe one rabbi, like John the Baptist. He's kind of the lead teacher, the leader of this group, or maybe a whole system of thinking, a certain interpretation of the Old Testament, and that would be like the Pharisees. And these religious groups would have a method of interpreting the Old Testament, and then they would have a method of applying the Old Testament to current life and how they would do that, and different ways they would go about that. And so these groups were divided up like that. And when it comes to the issue of fasting, what's interesting here is, in the Old Testament, fasting was only commanded one time a year. It was commanded on the Day of Atonement. The people were to fast fast. But these different religious groups would add these times of fasting on top of this one fast that was commanded. And the reason they would do this was to deepen their religious commitment. Uh, It wasn't necessarily sinful for you to fast a couple of extra days a week if you were into that sort of thing. Uh, Fasting was very important for Judaism. Uh, It was a pillar of, of Judaism, and it was a sign. Most people saw this as a sign of very deep commitment to God and pursuit of a of a, of a relationship with him or a, of a deeply religious life. It's a very pious act for you to participate in a fast. And so it's very interesting here with that sort of background, whoever's asking this question, they sort of assume a comparison between Jesus and his disciples and these other religious groups, John the Baptist and the Pharisees. Look what they say again. In verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, it was pretty standard for the most devout of these groups to fast multiple times per week. It would go several times a week and fast. And so these people asking this question, they look and they see deep religious commitment in these groups. And they see Jesus claiming to be a religious figure and a teacher, and they don't see deep religious commitment in him and his followers. But in this, there's an inherent assumption that Jesus is trying to do the same sort of thing that John the Baptist and that the Pharisees were trying to do. They assume that he's trying to mark out his unique contribution to Jewish life And they wonder, why in the world are your disciples acting in this way? This doesn't match up with what we know to be true about these other religious groups who try their best to follow the Torah, the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And so Jesus comes back to them, to this question, and he gives them an answer in verses 19 and 20. And he calls himself the bridegroom there. Now, we're going to circle back around to verses 19 and 20 because that, that concept of the bridegroom, I've already explained to you, that's really the center of this passage. But we're going to skip ahead to verses 21 and 22. And what he does here is he gives two images that are going to illustrate his ministry. And they illustrate what he means when he says, I'm the bridegroom. All right. So these are two examples, two illustrations, two metaphors that he's giving that explain this concept of the bridegroom. And we'll get back to the bridegroom in just a minute. But look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, it may come as a shock to you, but I am no seamstress. (laughs) I know nothing about sewing or about fabric. But during this time, if you had a a robe or a well-worn jacket or a piece of clothing... It would get a tear in it, and there were, uh, there were certain ways that you had to go about fixing it. You had to be careful when you put a patch on the garment that you had that had torn. If it was a well-worn robe, then you'd had it for a while, and the fabric or the skin, the leather that you had used to make this particular robe would be stretched and shrink, shrunken, and you know it would sort of have, have become set in where it was going to be. And how it was going to fit on you. But if you took that old robe and you had a tear in it. And you wanted to put a patch on that. You couldn't put a piece of new leather on that. And patch over it. Because the new leather hadn't been stretched. It hadn't been shrunken yet. And so if you put that new piece of leather on that patch there. Then it's going to shrink in a pretty dramatic way. It's going to adjust. It's going to cure over time. And ultimately, if you stitch it in there, it's going to tear the garment. And now you've even got a bigger hole on your garment. And the point of the illustration, you can see in verse 21, it tears away from it. You have a bigger hole. The point is our word here, our first effect. It's disruption. It's it's damaging to put this new patch on this old garment. It doesn't make sense to join the old with the new in this case. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't compare my ministry to the ministry of these others. It's not the same at all. It's so unique. It's so different that it requires a category all its own. He uses another illustration to sort of drive this home. In verse 22, look there. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wine skins. Now, some of you are maybe familiar with how this works, but when making wine, again, I'm not an expert in this, but when making wine, the fermentation process takes place and gas is released when this happens. And so it's actually pretty similar to the garment described above. You would have these leather skins that would would hold the wine or the grape juice initially. And then as it would turn into alcohol and the fermentation process would take place, gas was released and it would expand the bottle that it was in. And so if you had an old skin or an old bottle, it was already sort of brittle and it was set in place. And if you put new wine that had to go through that process, it would break, would burst the bottle. And so that wasn't a good idea. It wasn't, wasn't advantageous to do that. And the point here, it it affirms the same thing that the, the previous illustration makes, disruption. The point is, is that you cannot continue to carry on as you were. Something unique and disruptive has happened in light of the arrival of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. Jesus wants them to understand. He gives these illustrations here because he wants them to understand. I'm not just another religious teacher. I'm not just another religious movement like John the Baptist maybe could have been interpreted or like the Pharisees were. I am a unique and disruptive force. And that's what Jesus wants them to understand here. And if you stop and think about the coming of Christ in light of the whole narrative of Scripture, everything that comes up to Christ and everything that flows from Jesus, he is the centerpiece The story of Christ's arrival in the gospels is the climax of scripture. Everything points to this and everything flows from this. This is a disruption in the way that everyone lives on the face of the earth. And that's not too big of a statement. Everything. Jesus Christ came onto the scene here. Nothing can remain the same. That's what he's telling them. Now, if that's true, about Christ, if he's that disruptive of a force, what does that mean for our lives today? And I think so often we try, to, we try to sort of fit Jesus into our lives and our agendas. We start with ourselves, and then if we can place him in somewhere, then we're, we're fine doing that. But we don't start with the reality of Jesus as the disruptive force in the universe when he arrives and when he preaches the kingdom and ultimately when he dies and rises again. We don't recognize him as that. We try to fit him in as it suits us. And if we want to walk worthy, comparable to the gospel message, Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the gospel. If you want to walk, if you want your life to be matching up to the reality of the gospel message, then your life has to reflect that the coming of Jesus Christ is a disruptive force. In this moment, everything changed and nothing would ever be the same again. It is not business as usual for us as believers. Everything has changed. So, what exactly makes Christ's arrival that unique? I mean, he's disruptive and he tells them here, look, my coming is, is something unique, something disruptive. So what makes the ministry of Jesus, the central point of salvation history, the whole Bible points toward him and flows from him. What makes him that? Why describe his ministry and his person in those terms? well, What I told you before, the images of verses 21 and 22 are really just illustrations of what we're going to see in verses 19 and verse 20. And in those verses, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And that brings us to our second effect here. First of all, he's a disruptive force. Nothing can remain the same when he arrives. And the second effect, oddly enough, is that when he arrives, one of those effects is that There's rejoicing in his coming. Remember the question. Go back to verse 18. Remember what was asked here. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now in verses 19 and 20, we get to the big idea of this passage. This is the centerpiece and where we're going to spend the rest of our time here. Jesus evokes wedding imagery here. He wants them to think in terms of a wedding. Now, because of that, I want to take just a couple minutes here and I want to talk about marriage in the Bible. And this is very, very applicable to this passage here. And you need to understand the Bible's teaching on marriage before you can understand why Jesus uses this image of a bridegroom here. He doesn't just pull this out of thin air. He's saying something very, very intentional. When he calls himself the bridegroom here, what do we know about marriage from scripture? Well, marriage is one of the most fundamental relationships that humans enter into, if not the most fundamental of human relationships. And it's really, I think wonderful that the Bible basically starts with a wedding, right? Genesis chapter two, God creates the world. And the first thing he says that is not good is that Adam is alone. And then there's this whole wedding scene that happens there. And I like to picture God as absolutely delighted in what's taking place in Genesis chapter 2. When he puts Adam to sleep and brings Eve to Adam. And I don't know if you know this, but Adam's response to Eve there is poetry. He is so taken with her that he spits out beautiful poetry as a response. And he is thrilled. And I like to see God just, I like to picture God just sitting there enjoying this taking place. Marriage is the foundation of the family. And the family is the foundation in many ways of a whole, of all of human culture, of society. So marriage is very, very important for our lives here. And we ought to talk about marriage. And we ought to value marriage. It ought to be something that is, is significant in our church body. With all of those very high things that I've just said about marriage. Did you know that in scripture marriage is actually nothing more than a metaphor? Did you know that marriage is actually given to us in order to teach us about something else? Now, what is that? If God values marriage this much, as we've just described And then he says, you know what? Marriage is just to teach you about something else. Well, then whatever that other thing is, (laughs) that must be something that is worthy to think about and worthy to ponder. What is that other thing? Well, listen to Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And now, down to verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2, the foundational passage on marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, you have marriage. It's this beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing. And then look what Paul says. This mystery, the mystery of marriage, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, what is marriage really for? A lot of things, but ultimately marriage is really for us to understand the relationship between God and his people. That's what it's supposed to teach us about Jesus and his people, Christ and the church. So think of it this way. Paul did not, Paul did not see marriage and think, oh, that's a really good illustration of christ in the church god started with his love for his people and then god created marriage to illustrate his love for his people for us that's how significant marriage is and that's how significant god's love for his people is so with all of that understanding in mind in the old testament you very often see the relationship between israel and god described as a marriage Yahweh, God, is a faithful and loving husband. But what does the Old Testament tell us over and over again about Israel as Yahweh's bride? What do we find is true about Israel? Over and over again, Israel is described as an adulterous wife. She pursues other gods, she pursues other lovers, she leaves her husband. And goes out after others instead of him. Listen to Exodus 34. It's a little small, but I'll read it to you. This is right after the golden calf incident. And this is as the people are looking to go into the promised land. Look what God warns them about. Observe what I commanded you this day or command you. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Here's what he wants them to do. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god, like a jealous husband. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after other gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited... You eat of his sacrifice, you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Israel is described here potentially warned against being an adulterous wife to Yahweh. Now, listen to Hosea. Hosea is a fantastic book to get this imagery of God as the husband and Israel as his wife. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom for the land Israel commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea is going to experience the same thing that God experiences. Hosea 2 verses 1 to 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people and say to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead for she... He's saying she's acting as if she is not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Now, if you keep reading in Hosea, some of this language probably makes you uncomfortable a little bit. Keep reading in the book of Hosea. Some of the language gets quite graphic. It's really in your face and it's in in your face for a reason. It's intended to evoke very deep emotions in us. And it's intended to help us recognize the very profound evil of what Israel did in the Old Testament. Go this afternoon, we won't read it this morning, but go this afternoon and read Ezekiel chapter 16. When you read Ezekiel chapter 16, God describes Israel as someone that he found and he loved And he redeemed and saved from the situation that she was in. And he doted on her and gave her gifts. And then he describes Israel as taking the very gifts that he has given to her and using those gifts to turn around and pursue other lovers and to leave the covenant relationship that she has with him and to go after other lovers. Marriage is a beautiful, intimate, wonderful gift And God says throughout the Old Testament that he has loved his people as a husband should love his wife. But then throughout the Old Testament, his people have trampled all over his affection and they've pursued other lovers as a prostitute. That's how God describes it. I'm not making that language up. But here's the kicker. Here's the thing to focus on this morning. God is jealous, he's a jealous husband, and he is faithful to his bride. He will not allow his bride to continue to do what she's doing, to continue to pursue other lover, lovers, and he will not divorce her. He comes to his people, he draws close to them, and he continues to love them And have affection toward them. And listen to this passage in Isaiah 54. I'll read it to you if you can't see it. Very explicit language. For your maker is your husband. Speaking to Israel. The Lord of hosts. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you. Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off. Says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I've sworn that I will not be angry with you, will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so as Israel is in exile, God promises to them... As your loving husband, I am going to pursue you, and I'm going to make things right between us. And so then we open to the pages of the New Testament, and very early in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom. He's the husband of his people, and he has come to pursue his bride. The wedding is about to take place. Look at the language that he uses in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He describes his disciples as the wedding guests, as the bridal party here. And can you imagine going to a wedding and seeing the entire bridal party and they're all sitting there and they're not eating They're looking very dissatisfied and they're turning down all the food and all the drink and they're not dancing and they're not having a good time because they're on a religious fast. (laughs) Well, of course not. That's not the appropriate time and place for you to be practicing a fast. When the groom shows up to the wedding, it is time for a party. It is time for rejoicing. Listen to what one author said. In other words, The party is in full swing, and nobody wants glum faces at a wedding. This story is not a piece of teaching about religion or morality, nor is it the dissemination of a timeless truth. He means about fasting. It is a claim about eschatology. The time is fulfilled. The exile is over. The bridegroom is at hand. That's why Jesus calls himself the bridegroom here. And that's why he finishes verse 19 the way he does look there. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast in light of who Jesus is. It is completely out of the question for his disciples to walk around and fast. It's because of the unique disruption that his ministry brings his person and his work. Now, If you're putting the pieces together here, if you're making connections in what we're saying this morning, then you know that when Jesus calls himself the bridegroom here, he's claiming something pretty big, right? I mean, think about the way I described God in the Old Testament as the husband and Israel as the wife. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, the bridegroom is here. He's saying that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Testament expectation that Yahweh would return to his bride and would bring her back into a relationship with him. He is claiming here very subtly, almost secretively, he's claiming to be God here is what he's saying. And one of the effects of his arrival is going to be rejoicing. When he is here, it is time for a party. It's time for the disciples to delight in who he is. And one of those effects beyond rejoicing is going to be for his people to, to recognize who he is and then repent and believe. And here's our third effect. So he's a disruptive force. And because he's that disruptive force, there should be great rejoicing. And then, because he's the bridegroom, he's going to bring about redemption. And one of the things you'll, you'll notice in the book of Mark is that Jesus' disciples really didn't fully understand who he was early on, right? They kept expecting his earthly ministry to result in the overthrow of Rome and for the kingdom to be fully and completely inaugurated right then and there. And another effect of his ministry that they didn't recognize early on was to bring about redemption, and this was through his death. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Jesus uses veiled language here. He's not explicit. He's not super clear. But looking back, we know what he's saying here. He's not going to be with his disciples in the flesh forever. As you're reading through the gospel of Mark, one of the things you notice up until chapter eight, Jesus is, is pretty vague about exactly who he is. I mean, he uses language. He, he describes himself as forgiving. Only God can forgive, but he's not super explicit with either the disciples or the religious leaders. But turn with me to chapter eight for a moment. This is the, the centerpiece of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter eight. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you're the Christ. And then look at verse 31. Look what happens after his identity is known. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Notice what it says there. He began. Now. After they've made his identity clear, they know, they understand to some extent who he is, now he begins to teach them directly about being taken away. Look at Peter's response in verse 32. And Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the center of the book, and the whole tone changes after this. The disciples sort of get it, but they don't fully understand. They know he's the Messiah, but they don't understand how his coming death is going to fit in with his claims to be the bridegroom, to be God, to be the Messiah. They don't quite understand it. But Jesus starts to make it explicit and clear after Mark chapter 8. But all the way back in Mark chapter 2, Jesus knew the purpose of his ministry, But he's not making it explicit quite yet. And so he hints at it in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Notice how he says that, taken away. And it gives us the picture of a violent removal from the wedding guests. The bridegroom is going to be violently taken away from them and ultimately This being taken away is why he shows up in the first place, isn't it? This is why he came. If he's going to set things right with his people, if we have this whole history of Israel continually pursuing other gods and the most fundamental problem that they have has not been fixed yet, Jesus shows up and says, I'm the bridegroom, I'm the husband, I'm here, and I'm here to make things right. How can he do that? Well, he has to do that through his death. Because his death is going to deal with their most basic problem, the problem of sin. And his death is going to deal with the brokenness of the world. Things are not as they should be. And so Jesus is taken away, ultimately, so that you and I might fall in love with him as his bride. And so that we might be able to be with him as his bride forever. That's one of the effects of his arrival as the bridegroom. And that brings us to our last effect here. Waiting. One of the effects of his coming ultimately is going to be you and I waiting. (laughs) Look at the rest of verse 20. And then after he's taken away, they will fast in that day. Once the bridegroom has been taken away, there will be an appropriate time for fasting. In one sense, the party will sort of be over, and there'll be this in between time, and the disciples will fast. And that's the time we're in right now. And one of the mistakes that we can make about this passage is to think that Jesus is saying, well, we don't ever need to fast. Well, that's not what he's teaching at all. I mean, it's very clear in verse 20 that there does come a time when his disciples will fast. The Sermon on the Mount actually gives instructions regarding how we should fast and the the attitude and the motivation we should have when we fast. And so we find ourselves here right now. There will come a day when they will fast And that period of time when the disciples will be given to these practices and will fast is a period of waiting. We have redemption. It's been initiated by the death of Christ. He has been taken away. But in the meantime, we know his promises. We know that the bridegroom has promised to ultimately come back for his people. We know that. And he's promised to bring the church into a wedding relationship with him one day in the future. And so you and I fast and we pray and we wait for that day right now we know the joy that comes through the bridegroom's first arrival and right now we wait with joy and anticipation for his second arrival i love how the bible begins with the wedding in genesis 2 but it also ends with a wedding revelation 21 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That relationship, the wedding, the marriage will be fully entered into as God intended it to be. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what we're waiting for that day. Now, those of you who are married, you probably remember, maybe you do, your period of engagement when she had the ring and you were waiting for that wedding day. Well, Bethany and I spent a pretty big chunk of our engagement in different states, which I don't recommend that. Um, We were engaged in May and we got married in October and I was in Virginia and she was in South Carolina uh, during a a pretty big chunk of our engagement. And I, I don't think I've ever had a period of my life where I'm anticipating one particular day on the calendar more than that. Everything in our lives during that three or four months, five months in between, looked forward to October 9th. That's our wedding day. Everything, as we worked, as we talked on the phone, as we planned, everything about that time period was anticipating. What was it, 5.30 p.m., 6.30 p.m. on October 9th? We were looking forward to that time. We bought things, we planned, we longed for our wedding day. Jesus has promised to return for his bride, hasn't he? He's the bridegroom and he is faithful to his promises. So my question for you and me today is, does that future wedding impact the way you and I live life today? Do we ever think about it? Do we plan for it? Do we anticipate it? Do we long for it? eschatology the study of last things eschatology is not primarily about charts and dates and figuring out the details of what happens when eschatology is primarily about hope anticipating that we will be with christ dwelling with him for all of eternity and it's primarily about the way that truth impacts the way i live life today In which righteousness dwells and according to revelation, where we dwell with our husband, Jesus Christ and God, the father. That's what we're waiting for. And that should impact our holiness and godliness in the way we live life every single day. Let's pray. Father, it is so beautiful to picture you and to think of you as a bridegroom As a husband who pursues his sometimes wayward bride. We are so thankful for your faithfulness and your commitment to us. Even though we go astray, Lord. We go astray in our thinking, in our affections, our habits, our loves, our our desires. But we're so thankful that we have your word. Divine communication from you to explain this love relationship that you have to us. And to give us hope and anticipation about that coming day. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, you would give us the ability to look forward to and anticipate that day, Father. And I pray that that day, that future wedding day, would absolutely shape everything about our lives this week. Help our eschatology to be practical. Help it to work itself out in our in our lives, in our marriages in the way we parent, in the way we handle our finances, in all of those details, Lord. And we're so thankful that you have promised to return for your bride. You have promised to make us holy and without blemish, because we're not that right now, Lord. We're in process. Your spirit is working on us. But we anticipate that day when we are in garments white, free from the stain of sin, and able to just rejoice and enjoy you Without the fall hanging over us, Lord. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.